There it is. Okay. Well, welcome tonight. Glad you're here. Welcome new people over there. Look forward to meeting you guys um, and you too. So thanks for being here. Um, we've been going through the Gospel of John this semester. And so we are in um, an interesting passage in John chapter 5. And it's quite long. Um, in fact, it's 47 verses. And you might think, gosh, that's like it's going to take all day to read that. But the reason why... I want to read that whole section is because it's kind of one pericope is what they call it in in seminary. But it's kind of one whole section of Jesus does this miracle. okay, And then the next 30 verses, He's explaining uh, what He's doing. And so that's why I want to keep it all together. In fact, it's probably the most significant um, sermon that Jesus gives in the Gospel of John in terms of who He is. He's given a defense of, this is who I am. Uh, he's been doing miracles. And he's been getting uh, a lot of attention, especially from the religious right, from the Pharisees. From guys who are basically saying, we don't want anything to do with you. In fact, we think you're blasphemous. In fact, we want to kill you. And so you're going to see that all rise in this passage. And you're going to see Jesus give this amazing defense uh, on who He is. Okay, so that's John chapter 5. Um, and we're going to look at verses 1, the whole thing. So here we go. Okay. In the future, I'd like to have you guys read this. And I always forget to like pick people to do these things. So somebody remind me, because I'd love to have you guys up here reading this so that I don't have to read the Bible the whole time. Okay. So hear God's Word. Um, after this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem... Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. We know about Bethesda. Uh, Which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath and it is not law for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me... That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because He was doing things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Okay, so that's the big miracle. Now He goes into basically a a defense of who He is. Okay, so here's what Jesus says about Himself and about His Father. In verse 18 going on, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He he Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear Him will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. He goes on, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, he's talking about John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me and the Father who sent me has Himself bore witness about me. His voice you you have never heard. His form you've never seen. You do not know His Word. You do not have His Word abiding in you for you do not believe the, the One whom He sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in the Father's name, and you do not receive Me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. On him you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Okay, let me just pray for a second. That was that was a long passage. Okay, you guys still there? Or you just you're you're snoozing? Okay, hang in there. Jesus, thank you for this word that you've given us and help us um, to dive into it a little bit here. Your spirit would be with us, um, that we'd understand what you're saying to us, um, what it means for our life. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Graham Hess. Anybody know that name? Mel Gibson played him in signs. Okay, And he said this. He's the minister who is doubting, okay? And he says this, People break down into two groups. 
When they experience something lucky, group number one sees it as more than luck, more than coincidence. They see it as a sign, evidence that there is someone up there watching out for them. Group number two sees it as just pure luck, just a happy turn of chance. I'm sure the people in group number two are looking at those 14 lights, okay, talking about the movie, in a very suspicious way. For them, the situation is a 50-50. Could be bad, could be good. But deep down, they feel that whatever happens, they're on their own. And that fills them with fear. Yeah, there are those people, but there are a whole lot of people in group number one. When they see those 14 lights, they're looking at a miracle. And deep down, they feel that whatever is going to happen, there will be someone there to help them. And that fills them with hope. See, See, what you have to ask yourself is, what kind of person are you? Are you the kind that sees signs and sees miracles? Or do you believe that people just get lucky? Or look at the question this way, is it possible that there are no coincidences? So, tonight we're looking at this story, and we're really confronted with two people in this story. There's this invalid There's this man, this paralytic, 38 years he has been crippled. He's been sitting there at the pool of Bethesda, okay? And he's been unable to move. There was some idea that if the water was stirred, there was angels stirring this water. And if you got in there first, in another gospel kind of talks about this, that you would be healed, but he could never get in there. But he believed that somehow this was going to save him. But yet, he's an invalid. He's crippled. He can't do anything. And then you have this this other group of people, the Pharisees, who really, I would say that <laughs> looking at it in, a, in the M, uh, M. Night Shyamalan way, that these are group number two. Okay, who, although they're religious, they really don't believe. Although they're religious, they really don't have a true faith. Okay, they really don't know anything about the supernatural. They see religion. They see everything that they've been taught in the Scriptures is all about like what they can do in order to earn God's salvation. So basically, it's all about them. And what we see in this crippled man is like he couldn't do anything except believe in the words of Jesus. And he is healed. And so, tonight we're going to kind of look at this idea, well, why should you believe in Jesus? Okay, why should... Is there any good reasons that you should actually believe in Jesus? And I've... I've uh, this is the triple A. You should believe Him because of His actions, His authority, okay, and His audience, okay? You might be able to memorize that even if you're falling asleep. Okay, so His actions. Because the whole point of John is John is building this gospel this story about Jesus so that you might believe. I mean, that's the whole thesis of the book in chapter 20. It talks about, I'm writing these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And by faith in Him, you might believe and have life. And so, right here in chapter 5, He's doing those things. He's building this story about Jesus and He's showing who Jesus really is. And, and the first thing here is, His actions point to the fact that He is God. Okay? His supernatural miracle here, this sign that John talks about, um, is something that only God can do. And so when you come to the Bible, when you come to a story, 
What do you believe? So as you go on in this story, you have Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And He's coming there during one of the feast days. We don't know which feast it was. If it was Passover feast, it may have been the Feast of Booths. Who's been on North Campus near the dining hall? Okay, what have you seen there? Yeah, that's the Feast of Booths. Okay, in the Old Testament, it was basically this recognition of God's um, favor to Israel in the wilderness that He provided. And so on North Campus, right outside the dining hall, you need to go there if you haven't seen it. They have like a kind of a little stick-covered booth there. And that's to signify um, what God has done for Israel in the wilderness. So it's possible it could have been that feast. We don't really know which feast it is. But all the feasts recognize this, that God has acted in history with His people. And He's redeemed them. He's done something for them. He's given them hope in their darkness. And so Jesus is there. He's getting ready to celebrate the feast. But guess where He goes? He goes to the place where the broken are. He goes, instead of like getting prepared and, I don't know, getting with His family and buying the things that they need for the feast, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, He goes to the place of need. He goes to this pool in Bethesda. And you might ask, well, why? Well, that, that's really what the miracles are all about. Miracles of Jesus are always connected to the brokenness of people. The miracles are always connected to what has sin destroyed. Okay? Is it health? You know, is it demonic oppression? Okay, the crippled, the blind, the lame. What is Jesus doing? In all of these miracles, He's saying that the kingdom of God has come because I am God and I am reversing the curse. You know, thinking in Narnia terms, okay? It's like Aslan is on the move and the white witch, you know, is melting. You know, the, the, the frozen tundra of Narnia is melting. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene and he does all these miracles, they're not just like these little miracles, like tricks that some of the um, newer gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, will say, like, Jesus was at a party when he was a little kid and he turned a clay pigeon into a real pigeon just to see it fly away. None of the miracles in the real Gospels say that. The real Gospel miracles are all about Jesus is doing these things which help people, which uh, reverse the curse, so to speak. And so, Jesus is bringing about restoration here. Um, And Matthew Henry says, when Christ came up to Jerusalem, He visited not the palaces, but the hospitals. I love that. When He he came to Jerusalem, He didn't go to the palace. He went to the hospital. Because that's what He was about. He was restoring the broken people. And so, in this miracle that He does, it, it says to us, do I believe in the supernatural or not? Do I think that this was just um, something that further down the line, people who put together the Bible uh, edited in and they, they tried to make Jesus something that He wasn't and they started talking about how He was a miracle worker? I would say no. I would say that the reason why we have this Bible, the reason why we have this church, the reason why the disciples went to death was because they really did see Him do these miracles. They really did see Him rise up from the dead. They really did see Him do all the things He said He did. That's why they 
They staked their life on him, and that's why 11 out of the 12 apostles died a martyr's death because they knew that this Jesus was real. They knew that what he did was true. And so Jesus is coming and he's showing by these miracles that I'm not just a man, guys. I'm not just a good prophet. I'm not just a rabbi. You know, I'm not just a really good teacher. But I am God himself in the flesh who's come to restore, to begin this restoration process, this rehab process, so to speak, of the entire creation. And starting with this guy who was 38 years beside the pool. And so when he does this, he gets into a big argument with who? The Pharisees. Okay, The guys who should know better. The guys who should be looking for a Messiah are totally blinded. And their only concern is that uh, the Sabbath be obeyed. Okay, Now it's interesting what Jesus says here. Um, He says... When Jesus answered them, verse 17, My Father is working until now, and I am also working. My Father is working until now, and I am working. And He did this on the Sabbath. What was He doing? Well, He's saying that really what the Sabbath is pointing to is the ultimate rest of God. But Jesus is involved in the work of redemption. Okay, It's not time for Him to rest now. He is winning our salvation. He is living the life the perfect life that you and I were to live, and now He is getting ready to die the death that we deserved on the cross. He is working redemption. And His time of work is right now. And so, the fact that He is coming and He is healing this crippled man was all part of His plan to say that the Messiah is here. Believe in Me. Place your faith in Me. Um, He's working redemption. And so, it's really interesting that these Pharisees uh, would just get all caught up in what I would call the minutia of the law. In fact, when the man was healed and he picked up his mat, they said, oh, no, you can't do that. Because in the Mishnah, in the Jewish law, the very last law was like, you can't carry your bed on the Sabbath day. Okay, that was, And the Mishnah was basically a, a, a set of laws that over time the Pharisees had built up over top of the Ten Commandments, over the moral law, to basically enact all of these rules that they gained their righteousness by. And they thought that, hey, by these laws that we're keeping, we are good with God. We're right. But what happened was they totally missed it because they thought that they were righteous and they thought that they didn't need a Savior. In fact, they're not even looking for a Messiah. And when He's right in front of their faces, they don't recognize Him. And ultimately, they hate him and they want to kill him. I mean, that's what that's what ultimate self-righteousness does. Self-righteousness says, I don't need God. I'm okay by myself. I can figure it out by myself. I can do it by myself. I can earn this acceptance. And what Jesus is saying is no. The whole purpose of the law is to show you deep in your heart that you hate God that you really want to suppress God. You actually want to be God and you don't want the real God. Anybody remember the line in Rudy? The priest was talking to Rudy and he said, one thing I know, uh, God is God and I'm not God. (laughs) But ultimately what our sin does is it says, I am God and I don't need the real God. That's basically what our sin does. And so, the, the Pharisees... 
and I, and I, I wrote this. When they were getting all aggravated about Jesus not keeping the Sabbath, it's like a football coach who scolds and fines his players for a touchdown celebration penalty after they just won the Super Bowl. I mean, this is kind of what the Pharisees are doing. It's like they're scolding their players for a celebration penalty, okay? After they just scored the, super, the, the winning touchdown for the Super Bowl. They totally missed it. They totally missed it. So the entire story of the Gospel is pointing to this fact that when you come to Jesus, you have to believe who He says He is. And He says He's equal with the Father. And He's doing the things that only God could do. He's doing creational things. Okay, And in fact, in John 1, it said that the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through Him, all things were made. And John is talking about Jesus. The Word became flesh. He's saying that this Jesus, same one that was with God in the beginning, created all things. Now He's here and we see Him doing creational things. Making dead cells in nerves come alive so that this man could stand up and walk. So do you believe in the supernatural? Miracles in the Bible. Let me just say this a little bit, uh, or just talk about this a little bit, because um, in our culture, you know, and you know, in a school like the University of Maryland, I know that you have a lot of classes where, gosh, the Bible, God, you know, everything is kind of laughed at, or it's seen as like this is fairy tales, or it's, it's nice that you believe those things, but these things really aren't true, and especially the supernatural. I would say. Um, Historically, over the last you know 50 years, has has basically people like Christopher Hitchens and um, Dawkins, these guys have basically said that you know everything in your Bible that's supernatural is just fairy tales, it's just legend, or it's just made up. Okay, and I don't know. Do you guys get that in your classes? Okay, if you have, I would say you probably do. Okay, it's, it's all it's all over the place. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about that before we go on. In fact, Thomas Jefferson, you guys probably know that he um, he had a Bible where he actually cut out all of the miracle stories and the supernatural stories in the New Testament. Did you know that? Because basically what happened was in the 17th and 1800s, there was a guy by the name of Frederick Schleiermacher who was a theologian. And he began to like say, because of the scientific knowledge that was coming on the scene, and the advance in science that these miracles that happen in the Bible, they must not be true. And there must be some explanation for those things. And in fact, um, we probably think these things were edited in. Because of course, you know, you can't walk on water. Of course, you can't make a crippled person um, get up. Um, You can't raise the dead. And so... All the supernatural things they would basically ignore and cut out of the Bible. And basically, you, you might ask, well, why, why would we even have a Bible? Well, basically, they still would be um, amazed at Jesus' teaching and His life. And ultimately, they got rid of the supernatural and they said, the main thing about Christianity is love. That we don't really need these stories of the fact that Jesus is God or that He was born of a virgin or that he suffered and died on the cross and rose again. What we need is just his teaching and the fact that he loved people. And let's just focus on that. And so this was called like theological liberalism. Okay. And basically it came through all the seminaries. It came through, um, 
you know, it came kind of out of Germany especially, and those seminaries had a great influence on American seminaries in the 1800s and early 1900s. And so a lot of the churches wrestled with these things and still do with whether or not, okay, can we really trust this Bible? Did John write these things or did Jesus really do these things? You know, did Jesus do these things or is that just what John wrote? So they're, they're bringing this division, okay? But what I would say is that comes from this idea of you have a presupposition or you have a, an ultimate belief bias that you're bringing into your knowledge of the Scripture. You're saying, if you believe that there is no, uh, there, there can be no evidence of miracles, therefore you will look at it that way. But if you believe that there could be miracles and there's that possibility, you, you can believe that. Okay? I want to just get to the point. The, the, the issue here is it's a faith issue. Okay? But it's not faith. It's not blind faith. Again, it's the testimony we have of the apostles saying, no, Jesus really did these things. Okay, we saw them with our own hands. In fact, if Jesus didn't do these things, like there's no reason we should even believe in the Bible or be here. If there's no resurrection, it's useless. Okay? Um, but <laughs> the thing is, uh, the whole church, the testimony of the church through the ages is all said, yes, these things really did happen. These people really did die a martyr's death because they really believed and they really saw. And so you can't get away from the miraculous when you come to the Bible. It's all over the place, the Old Testament, New Testament. But if you believe that there's a God who created everything, the very foundations of the earth, I don't think it's too hard to believe in a miracle. That He could come in, He could break in to what we might call a closed system and do something radical like raise the dead. If you believe in a God who created everything, if you believe that we're just time, matter, chance through millions and millions of years and somehow we came to this point and there is no God directing the process, then it is hard to believe in miracles. But that's hopeless. That's hopeless. So if you're believing that, I challenge you and I challenge you to like, let's talk about it, let's think more about it. Alright, so... The first thing, I'm sorry, I'm kind of going off point here, but um, but basically the, fir- the first thing I want to say is, is that we should believe based on His actions, based on these miracles. And that's why the miracles are written, so that we might believe. If you take out the miracles, no, no reason to believe. Second thing is this, we believe because of His authority. Because His authority is from the Father. And in fact... Um, when you read through this passage, now we're into the sermon that, that the miracle sets up. And it says that the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father and making, making Himself equal with God. In this sermon that Jesus gives, Jesus keeps mentioning the fact that He was connected with the Father, that Him and the Father are one, that He's not doing these things on His own. But it's the authority of His Father that is bringing all this about. And He says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him. Uh, the resurrection. 
Just as Jesus, just as the Father gives life, Jesus does as well. 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Um, and then He says this in 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He granted the Son also to have life in Himself. The point is, Jesus is saying, my authority doesn't just come from myself, which it can, but it also comes from the Father. There's this connection with Father and Son. Um, And ultimately, He says, I have authority to judge people. Okay, He says this in 22, Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So, this authority that Jesus has is from His Father. It's not like Jesus is just some prophet, some rogue prophet who kind of came on the scene by Himself um, as, as a miracle worker. But He is seen deeply connected with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All through the Gospels, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's this idea that there's a oneness. It's miraculous. It's a mystery. I don't understand it. But Jesus gets His authority because of His relationship with His Father. And, and so, as we think about that, the Pharisees, this is what's so sad. The Pharisees who studied the Scriptures, the Pharisees who knew their Bible backwards and forward, missed the Son. He was right in front of their face. But they didn't get it. And so this is why this is such... And they wanted to kill Him. And they hated Him. And so whenever I read this, I say, well, I'm like a Pharisee. You know, I'm, I grew up in the church. I know the laws. I know the rules. You know, I know the church speak. I know the Sunday school answers. And this is scary because that's who the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were the guys that grew up in the church. They knew all the answers. And they had no need for Jesus. And they really didn't see His authority. And they were following God the Father, kind of, but not really. And they read their Old Testament and they totally missed everything. And that's really the final thing. The last thing is this, we should believe because of the audience. And what I mean by audience is this witness throughout the Bible about Jesus. Okay, And and we should believe not because just He did these miracles. We should believe not just because the authority of the Father... But we should believe because there's this whole audience that is saying, He's the one. It's Jesus. Believe in Him. Look to Him. And so, um, I went to Gettysburg this past summer. I love the battlefield up there and kind of walking around it. Who's been to Gettysburg? And as I took like this bus tour around the battlefield. It was like a three-hour tour. We'd get out at these different places and this historian battlefield expert would just kind of like set up the entire battle you know like this is where lee was is where you know um and the whole thing and he's and he would point out as well like see this tree right here this is a witness tree okay and what he meant was that tree was there during the civil war like we know like it's got bullet marks or whatever in it it stands witness to the fact this battle was here and i thought that's really cool um, some of them have fall, fallen down. Some of, some of them, you know, have been struck by lightning and are dead. He said there was one that just that, that was just that just died recently. But to some extent, what we have in this passage is this witness tree 
of who Jesus is. And he first talks about John the Baptist. He says, You sent to John, and he's borne witness of the truth. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, um, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So he mentions John the Baptist. What was John the Baptist doing? He was really, he was the epitome and the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. Okay, hey, he was in the New Testament. But ultimately, he was the one right before Jesus. Okay? And his thing was, when he saw Jesus, he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he told his disciples, like, follow him. And he pointed people to Jesus. That's exactly what all the prophets were doing throughout the entire Bible. Adam and Eve. The garden. The... uh, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Way back there. That was a prophetic statement about this coming Messiah who would make all things right. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're all pointing forward. Uh, Moses, all of the things in Moses' life with the Passover and the wilderness, um, being called out of Egypt into Israel, into the wilderness, into the promised land. All of these things are pointing forward to Jesus. And so John the Baptist represented all the prophets in history saying, this is the one. The Pharisees missed it. But there's hundreds of testimonies that are pointing to Jesus. Now just think of this, like in relationship to like Mormonism. Okay, you have one guy, Joseph Smith, having a vision. Okay, and tons of people follow him. Nobody else had that vision of the plates. Nobody had found the plates that he saw. Okay? You have one person. In the Scriptures, you have just hundreds of people that are, that are following this line of prophecy. Different places, different people, different eras, all talking about this one who is to come. Uh, Islam. You have, in fact, um, you have the, the testimony of Muhammad and he received that revelation for about 23 years, okay, about Allah and the Quran. Um, but that's just one person again. So part of what I want to say is like, isn't God good? He's given us all these witnesses. He's given us all these prophets that are saying the same things. There's this unity. There's this encouragement from that. That, that warms my heart. That helps me say, okay, I believe because look, these prophets have been saying, and here he is. The second thing is his works bear witness, and we've already kind of dealt with that, but his miracles, the works the Father has given me to accomplish, verse 36, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me. He's saying, look at these works. Look at these things I'm doing. Look at these miracles. And ultimately, look at this main work that I'm going to do, my death and resurrection and ascension, the completion of my Father's will. To bring all my people home. Okay, to bring my bride home. I'm going to do that work. That's why He's come. And then His Word. His Word, He says in verse 39 and 40, and this is just one of my favorite passages which talks about how do you look at the Bible? Do you look at it as just a moral code book? Aesop's fables? Here's what Jesus says, 39 and 40, to the Pharisees. You search, you Pharisees search the Scriptures 
because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. What Jesus is saying is these Pharisees, they looked at the Bible like an intellectual um, answer book. They knew all the answers, they knew all the rules, but they missed the main point. The main point was all these things were pointing to Jesus, who He was, and what He's come to do. And so they missed it. Uh, They treated the Bible as a code book. Good works, ethics. And Jesus is saying, no, it's about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I want to read this quote from Frederick Dale Bruner, a commentary that I've, I've been reading. It's excellent. He says, the Bible is not about the Bible. And the Bible is not meant to be an encyclopedia of religious knowledge or facts. It is meant to be the book that points to Christ. Points in preparation in the Old Testament and points in presentation in the New Testament. The study of the Bible that is not preoccupied with the Bible's Messiah is misoccupied, misplaced Bible study. Let us watch like hawks that our pouring over Scripture has no other goal than to know Christ. The Bible itself is not life, but the Bible's center and point is life and is life-giving, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. That the whole Scriptures are pointing ahead, the Old Testament pointing ahead to Jesus, but not just the knowledge of Him, but the experience of Him, of knowing Him as God, of feeding on Him, of saying, I'm a mess. (laughs) I'm like the Pharisees. I can see my heart is just into myself, my self-righteousness or whatever. I don't have any need for a Jesus. I don't have any need for a Savior. And what Jesus is saying is you missed it. Because this whole thing is about me. It's about broken people. And that's why I go back to the, the two people in this story. The invalid or the Pharisee. The invalid is saying, I got no hope. I'm 38 years here. I can't even get up. Nobody will push, push me into the water. I'm hopeless. And Jesus comes along and says, rise, get up, take your mat and walk. And He does it. He heals him. The Pharisees, they've got all their extremities. They're good. They've got all their knowledge. Jesus shows up and they want to kill Him. The invalid, the crippled, he believed in the supernatural. He saw it happen in his life. Changed him. Changed everything. He believed. The Pharisee didn't believe. No faith. And really, that's what this is all about. It's... The question is, you know, do you believe in the person Jesus says He is? This supernatural God that came from the Father to do the Father's will. And He's saying to you and I, like the invalid, do you want to be healed? You know, do you want to be healed? Do you want to believe? Do you want to come to life? And it's really easy. It's just (laughs) saying yes. It's just saying, yes, I want to come to life. I want to have that. Let me pray. Jesus, thank You for um, this time. I know it's it's kind of been long. But Lord, um, what amazing truths about who You are and what You've come to do. And so, Lord, I pray that You would deal with us individually wherever we are in terms of our faith or unbelief or our doubts. Lord, um, so many doubts I can think of in my life that I need You. I need You to help me. And so I pray that for my friends as well, that, Lord, that You would chase away 
uh, the doubts, that you would give us um, your hope, uh, give us your truth. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. One song to close. Oh, and we forgot to mention, too, tonight we're going to play Ultimate Frisbee in the Dark on McKeldin Mall. And we have Rita's Ice as well. So I don't know what flavors, but anyway, don't forget that. Okay. Yep.